0: Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. On October the 7th, 2023, 3,000 Hamas terrorists, most of whom were trained in Iran, launched a terrorist attack against the nation of Israel, slaughtering hundreds of innocent people, seriously wounding and traumatizing thousands more. Although the scope and the time of the attack were a surprise, the fact that Israel was being attacked was no surprise. Israel has been under attack for more than 3,500 years by those who would seek to, like Iran, wipe it off the face of the earth. Have you ever stopped to wonder why there is such hatred for Israel, for the Jewish people? It doesn't really make sense when you look at it logically. Why is it Iran wants to wipe Israel from the face of the earth? Why do people hate the Jewish people? Why is it right now in our own country? We have hundreds of thousands of people protesting against Israel in support of those who behead babies and burn men, women, and children alive. How do you explain that kind of insanity? You'll never understand it until you understand what we're going to talk about today. The spiritual reason that Israel is under attack. You see, 4,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, God said to a man named Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. It is a nation that is going to be a human object lesson of my power, my glory, my holiness, my love, my faithfulness. It is a nation that unlike any other nation in the world, has the promise of endurance. This nation is going to live forever. Do you realize, ladies and gentlemen, no other nation has the promise of endurance? The United States of America doesn't have that promise. We'll be lucky to make it through next year, much less the next decade. But Israel is going to be here forever. God made that promise. He made it publicly. Well, since that time, Satan decide, decided to launch an attack. To try to destroy God's credibility by destroying the Jewish people. And throughout history, Satan has inspired human leaders to try to take out the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, it was Pharaoh. In the New Testament, Herod. In history, uh, the Greek era, 167 BC, it was Antiochus Epiphanes. In the 1940s, it was Adolf Hitler. These were all satanically inspired leaders who were trying to nullify the promise of God. But all of these Satan-inspired leaders were simply forerunners of the final and the greatest enemy Israel will ever, ever face. He is the world leader we call Antichrist. And during the last three and a half years of earth's history, Antichrist will launch an attack against Israel like the world has never seen. But much to his dismay, that attack will culminate in the return of Jesus Christ who will slay the enemies of God's people forever and ever. That day is coming. And you will never understand the end times until you understand God's plan for Israel. When it comes to the end times, it truly begins and ends with Israel. And that's what we're talking about today. What role Israel plays in the end times? If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. You know, you can divide the Bible into two parts. You say, well, pastor, that's kind of something everybody knows, the Old Testament, the New Testament. No. You can divide the Bible into two parts. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is part one of the Bible. It's a story of man's alienation from God. God created man, created him perfectly, put him in the garden. Man rebelled against God and moved further and further and further away from God till you get to Genesis 11, the ultimate rebellion, the Tower of Babel that's part one of the Bible, man's alienation from God. Part two of the Bible starts with Genesis chapter 12 and goes all the way to Revelation 22. It's the story of God's reconciliation with man. Even though we moved away from God, God took the first step to redeem us, to reconcile with us. And that first step started with the call of a man named Abraham. He was the beginning point of God's reconciliation with man. Now, let's look at the setting. The setting of God's call to Abraham takes place in Ur of the Chaldees. Ur was a metropolitan city in the Mesopotamian Valley on the Persian Gulf. It was a port city, much like New York or Los Angeles today. But the thing that... uh, uh, Ur was known most for was it was a center for idol worship. It was known for making idols. In fact, Abraham's father, Terah, was a worshiper and a maker of idols. And we can only imagine and surmise that Abraham followed in his father's footsteps. The Bible tells us Abraham was an idol worshiper. By the way, that reminds us That God doesn't choose us on the basis of our goodness. God didn't look down from heaven and say, I'm going to look for one person who doesn't worship idols and choose him. No, Abraham was a worshiper of idols, just like every other person. And by the way, God didn't choose you for salvation because of your goodness. Your being chosen by God had to do with his grace and his grace alone. God, out of grace, chose to call Abraham. Now look at Genesis 12.1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Underline that word, land. He was saying to Abraham, I want you to uproot your family. I want you to leave everyone and everything familiar to you to a land that I will show you. Why? Here's the covenant. Look at verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in in, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, you notice the three components of this promise, this covenant God made with Abraham. First of all, it began with a land. Go to the land that I will show you. You can't have a nation without a land for that nation to inhabit. And God said, I've got a piece of real estate picked out just for you that will be the place of your new nation. Now, we know what the boundaries of that nation are will be. Because in Genesis 15, 18 through 21, and Ezekiel 47, God outlines the boundaries, the borders of this new nation He was going to create. It's interesting. That outline is much larger than what Israel is inhabiting today. Today, it's only a fraction of what God promised. In the times of David and Solomon, they possessed the greatest amount of land, but never in Israel's history had they possessed all of the land that God had planned for them. Ladies and gentlemen, every conflict in the Middle East can be traced back to this question. Who is the rightful owner of that piece of real estate God talked about in Genesis 15 and Ezekiel 37? That's what the conflict is. Now I hear ad nauseum just like you do, this lie that comes from the left and people like parrots just repeated over and over again. It's the lie that Israel didn't come into existence until 1948, 75 years ago. And when they came into existence, those bad Israelis stole land from these poor Palestinians. And Israel is nothing but a usurper. It is an occupier, occupied territory of Israel. That violates not only what the Bible teaches us, but that lie violates what history teaches us. Let me remind you, Israel did not begin 75 years ago. They began 4,000 years ago with God's promise to Abraham. And just look at history. I mean, 3,500 years ago, 430 years uh, Uh, After Abraham, remember God raised up Moses to be the leader of the Exodus. The Israelites were in Egypt in bondage, and uh, Moses led them out of Egypt. Where? They were headed someplace to possess that land that God had promised. And even though they had Taking a 40-year detour in the desert, Joshua led them 3,500 years ago into the promised land. That's Israel, the land that God had promised to them. Hundreds of years after that, King David was in Israel. He was in Jerusalem. He established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. How do we know David was there in 1,000 B.C.? Because archaeology tells us that. The excavations at the City of David and other places have proven that there was a king named David and the Jews were in Jerusalem in 1000 BC. That is 3000 years ago. And today you see the same question. Who really owns this land? Now, you're hearing people propose. They've been proposing this since 1948. Well, we need a two-state solution, and that will solve the problem. A two-state solution. Why can't those Israelis learn how to share? They ought to just share the land with these Palestinians. You know why they don't do it? Because God said, don't you dare do it. In Joel chapter 3, verse 2, listen to what God the Almighty said. He said, I will enter into judgment against those who divide up my land. Anybody who divides the land is on the wrong side of history and on the wrong side of God. God said, this is my land and it belongs to my people. The promise was a land. It also, secondly, God promised a nation. He said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And he goes on to say, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Now, I need to stop here and answer a very important question. God made this promise to Abraham and his descendants. Who are the rightful descendants of Abraham to whom this land belongs? Let's remember a little bit of history here. Abraham was 75 years old when God made this promise to Abraham. He had no children. Sarah was 65. They had no children. And uh, uh, it's hard to be the father of many when you're not the father of one. But the Bible says, even though all evidence was to the contrary, Abraham believed God, and his faith was counted as righteousness. And so, Abraham took the promise literally. He packed up at 75 and went to uh, the promised land. Fast forward 10 years. Abraham is now 85. Sarah is 75, and there is no child anywhere. And yet, Abraham still believed God. The only problem was he didn't feel like God was capable of pulling off this promise by himself. So, you remember what happened. He and Sarah hatched this plan to let Abraham sleep with another woman, with one of the slave girls they brought from Egypt named Hagar. And Hagar conceived, and the next year when Abraham was 86, her son was born. Abraham's son, his name was Ishmael. Now, every Arab I know, every Muslim I know, traces their heritage to Ishmael. They are Abraham's child through Ishmael. Ishmael was born when Abraham was 86. For the next 13 years, Abraham never heard a word from God about anything. He had to wonder, well, where are the many you promised? I've got one, but where are the many? When Abraham was 99 years old, Genesis 17, God spoke to Abraham again. He said, remember that promise I made to you when I was 75? That I'm going to make you the father of a great nation? I'm still going to keep that promise. But I'm going going to keep the promise to make you the father of a great nation. And at that point, remember what Abraham said? Oh, thank you, God. May Ishmael live forever before you. He thought the promise was coming through Ishmael. God said no. Look at Genesis 17, verses 20 and 21. Here's the basis for the conflict in the Middle East. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. God said, I am going to bless your son Ishmael and all of his descendants. The Arab people today have been blessed by God. Look at that mound of oil they're sitting on over there. God has definitely blessed Ishmael and Ishmael's descendants. But, verse 21, my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at the season next year. The Bible says, yes, I'm blessing Ishmael, but this promise, Abraham, I've made to you of a land, the seed and a blessing, it's not going through Ishmael. It's coming to you through this son, Isaac, who is going to be the inheritor of this promise. The promise that God made to Abraham belongs to Isaac and his descendants, the Jewish people. And for 3,000 years, the conflict has been, who is the rightful inheritor of this blessing? Is it Ishmael? Is it Isaac? The Muslims say it's Ishmael. They say God made the covenant between Abraham and Ishmael. No, the scripture says, it is Isaac who will be born next year. And ever since that time, every nation that has come against Abraham and his descendants through Isaac has been judged by God. Just look at the Old Testament. Doesn't matter whether you're talking about the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, or any other Everybody who went against Israel has been destroyed, and you can't find a remnant of them anywhere. Look at the nation of Greece, the Greek empire. It was the ruler of the world until 167 B.C. And I... Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple of God in Jerusalem. Greek was over, Greece was overtaken by Rome. The Roman Empire was unlike anything the world has ever seen until 70 AD when they destroyed the holy temple in Jerusalem. And today the Roman Empire is but dust. I look at the United States of America and what is happening here. I believe one reason, the main reason God has blessed the United States of Israel is because we have blessed and supported the nation of Israel. And these people who are speaking against Israel, they are endangering the future of our country. We had a former president of the United States who last week said, he's not picking sides in this conflict with Israel and between Israel and Palestine. Not picking sides, what side is there that supports beheading babies and burning people alive? What a disgrace that is for any American to say such a thing. Mike Evans, my good friend here, the founder of the Friends of Zion, he was there the day we dedicated the embassy in Jerusalem And it was a historic day and in my opening prayer, I said with the Jewish officials seated right there in front of me, God has blessed America because of America's support for Israel. And when you support Israel, you are not only on the right side of history, you are on the right side of God. May America stand firm in her commitment to God's chosen people. God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. He promised a land, a nation. Thirdly, God promised a blessing. Look at this in verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, people have wondered, what is that worldwide blessing that would come through Israel? We don't have to wonder about it or speculate about it. God is very clear that worldwide blessing was a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who offers salvation to anyone of any nation who believes. How do I know that? Look at what the Word of God says in Galatians 3, verses 6 to 8. Even so, Paul writes, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to whom? To Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. Paul said that promise of a worldwide blessing. God was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to Abraham. That is the worldwide blessing. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 7 that's very important to understand. Paul says, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The people to whom this Abrahamic covenant applies are Jews, yes, but it is believing Jews, believing Jews. You don't get to be an inheritor of the Abrahamic covenant by just being a physical descendant of Abraham. You know who said that? Jesus. Jesus in John 8 was talking to the Pharisees, and they prided themselves on being Abraham's physical descendants. He said, no, no, you have to be a spiritual descendant of Abraham. That's what Paul is saying here. It is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he's talking about all believing Israel. God has a special promise for Israel. It's not the same promise as the church. It's a unique promise, but it's for believing Israel that these promises apply. We've talked about the components of the Abrahamic covenant. God said, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to give you a blessing. Now I want you to notice the characteristics of this covenant. First of all, The promise is a literal promise. God actually said, I'm going to give you a literal land to go to. You know, a lot of people want to try to spiritualize the land. They'll say, well, it's not a real piece of real estate over in the Middle East. Nobody cares about that. The land is heaven. Canaan is referring to heaven. Abraham was looking for a heavenly fulfillment. Ultimately, he was, Hebrews 11.10 said he was looking for a city whose architect and founder is God, but that didn't negate the fact that he was looking for an earthly land as well to go to. How do I know that? Look at what Abraham did after receiving this promise, verses 4 and 5 of Genesis 12. So, Abram went forth as the Lord has spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abraham believed he was going to a real place. He loaded up his family, loaded up his possessions and headed toward the promised land. When they got there, somebody said they probably looked like the Beverly Hillbillies coming into town with all their stuff piled high. They had accumulated for 75 years. Why go to that trouble if you weren't going to a literal land? It was literal. Secondly, God's promise was eternal. Look in Genesis 13, 14 to 15. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants for how long? Forever. You know, forever is a long time. Have you stopped to think of how long forever is? Somebody said it this way, just imagine Mount Everest, the tallest building and mountain in the world, Mount Everest. And just imagine once every thousand years, a little bird comes and lands on the top of Mount Everest to sharpen its beak, rubs it on the mountaintop a couple of times and flies away for another thousand years. Every thousand years, it comes to sharpen its beak on the summit of Mount Everest. By the time that bird has worn down that mountain completely, eternity will not have even begun. That's how long forever is. And that's how long this land belongs to Israel. I will give it to your descendants forever. This promise is literal, it's eternal, but here's the most important part, it is unconditional. It is unconditional. You know, there's some Christians who will say, okay, I concede, you're right, God gave a promise to the Israelites, and it would have been theirs if they had obeyed God. But when they rejected Jesus as Messiah, God canceled the promise, and he transferred it to the church. And so the church of Jesus Christ is the new Israel. All of the blessings that belonged to Israel now belong to the church. That land, it's now a heavenly land, heaven, That organism is no longer Israel, it is the church. We are the new Israel. Now, what are we to say to that? What are we to say about Israel's rejection of Christ? Did it have any consequences? Of course it did. Of course it did. But that doesn't negate the fact that God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham and his descendants. You see, there are some promises in the Bible that are Conditional. They are conditioned upon our obedience to God. But there are some promises that are unconditional. They are separate from anything we do or don't do. There is no doubt that God made some conditional promises to Israel. We see one of those in Deuteronomy 11, verses 26 to 28. Before the people finally entered into the promised land, Moses said to them, "'See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse.'" The blessing before you today and a curse. The blessing if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, and the curse if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but you turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known in other words, Israel, if you obey the commands of God when you enter this land, you're going to be blessed beyond imagination. But if you disobey God, you're going to suffer. And you look at Israel, her whole history has been a blessing and curses. When she followed God, God blessed her. When she disobeyed God and worshiped other gods, God punished Israel. He sent Israel into captivity. Blessings and curses, conditional promises. But those conditional promises that Moses spoke of. They in no way invalidate the unconditional promise of God that came 430 years before Moses to Abraham. You can have both conditional and unconditional promises at the same time. Let me illustrate that for you. When our second daughter Dorothy was born, our girls were very little, we decided to visit our attorney and to change our will. And we decided we wanted to leave whatever estate we had left, a large portion of it, to our two daughters. Now, we didn't really know our daughters that well at that time. They were itty-bitty kids. We didn't know how they were going to turn out. So we made this decision not based on what they would do or not do. We uh, based it on our love, our care for them. As our girls grew up and matured, they started to live under their own system of blessings and curses under the Jeffress Covenant. And it uh, worked this way. If you obeyed your parents, there were blessings. You got an allowance. You might get a car. You might get extra privileges of staying out late. But if you disobeyed, there would be a curse. The forfeiture of the car or the allowance or special privileges. They lived under blessings and curses the whole time they were in our household. But never once, well, maybe once. No, never once when they disobeyed did Amy and I say, we're going to go to the lawyer and change our will and X them out of the will. That would never have crossed our minds. It was an unconditional promise. It's the same with God. God has made some conditional promises to Israel and to us as well, but that doesn't invalidate the unconditional promise that God made. How do I know that? Listen to Galatians 3, 17 to 18. The law, which came 430 years later through Moses, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. The Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. The psalmist said that in Psalm 89. Look at the passage I had you read earlier in the service today. The psalmist said, if David's sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with the stripes. If Israel disobeys me, they're going to suffer the consequences, severe consequences for doing so. But, look at verse 33, but... I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendant shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever, like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. God said, this is an unconditional covenant. Regardless of what Israel does or doesn't do, I'm going to keep my promise because I have sworn by my own faithfulness to do so. Perhaps the greatest evidence that this covenant was an unconditional covenant is, is the way that covenant was ratified. In the Old Testament times, people had a way of satis- or, or signifying, of ratifying a contract between two kings. They had a way to seal the deal, if you would. Once they had agreed on the terms of the contract, if it was a bilateral contract, each responsibilities was enumerated that each king had to follow. Once they had finished, to ratify the covenant, they would take a group of animals, different animals, and they would slice those animals in two. And they would place one half of the animal on one side, the other half on the other, and leave a pathway in between. And then the two kings would each take a flaming torch and they would walk side by side between the animal pieces to ratify the contract. They were signifying that this contract depended upon the faithfulness of each party to the contract. So in Genesis 15, when it came time to ratify the Abrahamic covenant, God told Abraham to do something he already knew, to take the animal pieces and slice them in two to create the path between the animal pieces. But then something happened. Look at Genesis 15:12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Abraham fell asleep. Now look what happened next, verse 17. And it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. In other words, when Abraham was sound asleep, God alone walked between those animal pieces signifying that the ratification of this covenant didn't depend on anything Abraham would do or not do. He was asleep. This covenant depended on the faithfulness of God himself. How do I know that? Am I reading too much into it? Listen to what Hebrews 6 verses 13 to 14 says. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. God said... There's no other name I can swear by, so I'm swearing by my own faithfulness that I'm going to do what I've promised to do for Abraham and his descendants. Now, you're probably thinking, what in the world has this to do with the end times? I thought we were studying the end times. What does this have to do with the end times? Everything. Everything. Because the end times are about God fully fulfilling his promise, his unconditional promise to Israel. Now, this covenant has been partially fulfilled, but not completely fulfilled. For example, Israel is in the land right now, but not all of the land. They're not in all the land right now, but one day she will be. Israel is a great nation, no doubt about it, but Israel is not living in the peace that God promised, but one day she will be. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the worldwide blessing, did come through Abraham's descendant. He came. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again for our justification. He came, but he's not sitting on the throne in Jerusalem yet, like God promised, but one day he will be. The fact is, end times, the end times are about God completely fulfilling that unconditional covenant that he made with Israel. Now, perhaps you're thinking today, well, that's great if you're a Jew, but I'm not a Jew. Why should I care about this covenant? Well, the fact is, if you're a Gentile believer like I am, we get grafted into the tree of blessing, Abraham's blessing. We don't replace the Jewish people, but we get some residual benefits of a Savior who has saved us forever. But here's the more important way even that this applies to us. Just as God has made an unconditional promise to Israel, he has made some unconditional promises to you and me that depend completely on his own faithfulness. In John 10, 28, Jesus said, I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. No man shall snatch out of my hands those whom the Father has given me. In Hebrews seven twenty-five, it says, he shall save to the uttermost those who come to God through Christ. Hebrews 13 says, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Now, how do we know God's going to keep his promise? What if we die? We stand before God in judgment. He said, now, I know, I told you earlier, you're going to be saved by grace and not by works, but I've changed my mind. I've decided that's letting you off too easy. I'm going to judge you by your works, regardless of what I said. I get to make covenants and change covenants if I want to. And so I'm going to change the deal. I'm going to judge you today by your works. And he opens the books and says, hmm, not good enough. Depart from me. I never knew you. What is it that keeps God from changing his mind and changing the covenant? It is his faithfulness. Romans 11:29 29 says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And because we can trust in God's faithfulness and the promises he has made to us, so it is also because of God's faithfulness that God will fulfill his promises to Israel in the end times. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. These promises God offers you of forgiveness, of eternal life, of victory over death, these promises have to be believed to be received. Do you have that assurance? That assurance that one day when you die, God's going to welcome you into heaven? If not, it's no accident that you're listening to this message right now. I'm asking that nobody leave or move for any reason. This is an important time of our service, our invitation time. And right now, God has said, I promise to save you, forgive you, if you will put your faith and trust in my son, Jesus Christ. He's the only way we can experience the forgiveness of our sins. And today, if you would like to trust in Jesus as your Savior, I want to invite you wherever you are to voice this prayer to God as I voice it publicly knowing that God is listening to you right now. Would you pray this with me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you in many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today, that you love me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me, to take the punishment I deserve to take for my sins. And right now, I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.